If you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you don't own a copy of the Bible this morning, I want to offer you one. We have provided Bibles at the middle of each aisle, under the chair, at the very end, uh, right here in the center, uh, that are specifically for you to take with you, both to use this morning, of course, but also to take with you if you don't have a copy of the Bible, so that you can read uh, the words that have gathered us here this morning and that are the difference between hope and despair for those of us who trust in Christ. We'd love the chance for you to read that for yourself and then to talk to you about it uh, later. Uh, this morning, it'll help you to have it open in front of you as we walk through a few verses together from an old, old letter written by one of Jesus' friends, colleagues whose job it was to try to help other people who didn't have the benefit of knowing Jesus uh, when he was alive come to understand who he was and what he offers and why he is such good news for the world. Uh, We're going to be walking through a few verses from this old letter, beautiful letter, uh, written by Peter. While you're turning over there, I'll mention uh, uh, earlier this week I came across an article. uh, I don't know where where the stats supporting this claim came from. The headline was something like, this is referring to last year, 2017, uh, that, that that year was perhaps the worst year on record for persecuted Christians worldwide in the history of the church. Uh, now, these persecutions are happening in places where religious identity and ethnic identity is often closely intertwined. So it looks a lot like genocide in places uh, in Africa, in the Middle East, in North Korea, places that, uh, w- where numbers are hard to come by because they're so large and because in some cases these areas are so remote or so closed off from the outside world it's difficult to get a good count. But this article is claiming last year was the worst year on record for persecuted Christians worldwide. A lot of times we pray for persecuted Christians here in, in our church, in our public services, and encourage you guys to be aware of what Christians worldwide are facing through websites like opendoors.com, uh, which is a, a sort of catalogs where persecution is happening and under what circumstances and how you can pray. Um, there, there are other guides that you can get. They aren't hard to find. That, that'll help you learn more about that. I think it's appropriate for us to pay attention to the, the, the plight of Christians in places where they aren't as free as we are here to gather and worship and to be public about their faith in Jesus. I think it's important to focus on that. I think the downside of focusing on persecution like that, the kind that looks like genocide, the kind that looks like you know, Fox's Book of Martyrs and uh, people being burned at the stake in, in Reformation England, some of these big stories that might have captured your attention before, the downside of thinking about Christian suffering in those categories, though, is that sometimes we can put suffering on a pedestal as if it's some sort of elite and unusual Christian experience, something that, Lord willing, won't ever happen to me. Uh, And and, and insofar as we think about suffering in terms set by Fox's Book of Martyrs, or even these stories I've just referenced, uh, opendoors.com, when that's where our mind goes when we think about suffering, To whatever extent that's true, it can make texts like the one we're going to look at this morning difficult to connect with uh, because this is a text about suffering. And if we think suffering looks like martyrdom, we'll have a hard time recognizing that Peter's actually talking to us too. What we need is some help to see what suffering means when Peter's talking about it here and why it's expected for Christians and why ultimately, especially we need to know, why ultimately suffering is worth it for Christians so that we won't be surprised when our faith costs us something even if it never looks like genocide 
This text that we're going to look at this morning, these first six verses of chapter 4, is given to us to explain the suffering that's been the backdrop for Peter's letter all along. All along, he's had suffering friends in mind. He's been writing to try to help them hold on to faith when there were lots of good reasons not to. And in this text, finally, that theme that's been there all along really comes to the surface. And he gives, it's, it's going to continue to get developed through the rest of this letter. But in this particular section, what he gives us uh, is some help understanding where suffering comes from and why suffering is essential, why it's worth it to suffer as a Christian. What I want to do is just break this down, what he says to us, break this down in three steps. I want to show you from what Peter says that for those who follow Jesus, suffering is intentional, suffering is inevitable, and suffering is actually hopeful. These are the three steps I want to show you from Peter this morning. You can follow along the worship guide. I've printed them there in case you guys want to jot down ideas as we move along. The first thing that I want to do, though, is just read the text that we're going to consider this morning. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in chapter 4, verse 1, and read through chapter 4, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what, is, what the Gentiles want to do living and sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The first thing I think we need to notice about this passage and about Christian suffering comes from the command that's at the heart of this passage. In the very first verse that I read, we get the focal point for everything else that comes. Everything after this command is just unpacking this command. And here's the command that Peter gives us, appealing to the example of Jesus Jesus suffered in the flesh, and since that happened, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's the command. Another way to translate this command, this way of thinking reference, would be uh, to, to, to translate it as purpose or intention or resolve. Since Christ, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same intention. Arm yourselves with this same resolve. I think those fit the context a little better. We're not talking about a mindset. It's just some sort of idea. And a way of thinking sometimes could just make you think that, that he's talking about a set of ideas that you carry along with you. But that's not, it's more than that. It's stronger than that. For Christ, he came to suffer. The, the, the gospels are real clear about that. It wasn't like he came here to teach and to do miracles and to help people who needed help and then Oh no, all of a sudden he suffered. Unfortunately, he got caught up in something else that was going on. It, it wasn't, it wasn't a, just a circumstantial thing for him. The Gospels make it really clear that, that he came to earth in order to suffer, that that was intentional, it was part of his purpose. And, and, and what he's saying here, what Peter's saying here in this letter is that 
not that, I think it, it's not that we ought to seek out suffering on our own, much less that we have to suffer to save other people like Jesus did. That's not the connection between Jesus' suffering and ours. It's different. But just as Jesus intended to suffer, so we should too. Because it should be just as much a package deal for us as it was for him. Let me say some more about this to make sure it's clear. I don't think he's saying that you should aim for suffering as an end in itself. As if just the suffering itself adds some favor to your account before God. So that no matter what the suffering comes from or why the suffering happens, you should just go out there and try to suffer impose it on yourself so that God will love you more. That, that, that is not what he's saying. It's not something you want. I don't think anyone should want to suffer. It's not something you look for. It's not something you see as good on its own. What I think he's saying instead is that we plan on suffering as a core part of the decision to be with Jesus. We plan on it because it's part of that decision. It's a feature, not a bug. Or let me, let me use another metaphor. It's, it's like changing diapers. If, if, if you've taken on responsibility uh, for the parenting of an infant... Changing diapers was not part of the reason you took on that responsibility. It wasn't itself part of the draw, right? I don't know anyone who thought, you know, what I really want is to be responsible for an infant so that every day I can change five stinky diapers or more. No one thinks like that, and nor should you. But if you take on responsibility for an infant, you bring an infant into your home, then the diapers are something you plan on. They're a core part of the decision. There is no decision to be responsible for an infant that doesn't include changing diapers. So you intend to when it's necessary because you intend to be a parent. Now, I think this understanding of what Peter means helps us understand why, what, what he says next. Because what he says next is one of the pieces of this passage is a little hard to get your mind around and can, can sometimes have a kind of shock value to it when you read it that can scare you even. He says, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking, the same intention, the intention to suffer, just like Jesus intended to suffer. For the reason, the reason this is important. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, he says. Basically, he's telling us here why it's important and good when we arm ourselves with the intention to suffer, when we go into our connection to Jesus knowing it will bring suffering to us. It's good because the one who has suffered has ceased from sin. That's what he's saying. That's why it's good to arm yourself like this. But that's a jarring statement. On the surface, it sounds like if you suffered, then you don't sin anymore. And I don't know anyone who doesn't sin anymore. So those of us who are maybe even especially sensitive about whether, where we stand with God might read a text like this and think, well, if, if those who have suffered, those who are really with Jesus, those who have armed themselves in the way Peter says have stopped sinning, the fact that I keep sinning means I guess I'm not really with Jesus. And, and I want to just make it as clear as I can, that's not what Peter's trying to say. He's not saying that the person who has suffered will never sin again. One reason we know that is that the, the, the rest of the New Testament, Peter's friends people he agreed with make it clear that's not true. That's not the way it works. But another reason is that the context just gives us a better sense of what he means here. Here's what I think it means. If you're willing to suffer for Jesus, to take that on as a feature of being with Christ, not a bug, to accept it as part of the core decision to be with him, if that's something you're willing to do, 
then what that shows is that you've made a break from what you lived for before. Verse 2 fleshes this out a little bit. The one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And in verse 2, he helps us understand more what he means. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The one who's willing to suffer for their connection to Jesus is one who's traded in what they were living for for something new that's now their goal. They have ceased from sin, from what he often calls human passions or the flesh. They've ceased from that and now they're, now they're living for something else, something he refers to as the will of God. When you suffer, when you're willing to deny your desire for comfort or freedom or approval or whatever else you'd normally want, you're done living as a slave to whatever you naturally want. Now you live for God's will. Here's how one commentator put it. I like the way this guy put it. The commitment to suffer reveals, he says, a passion for a new way of life. So in place of one set of passions, what he calls the human passions, which is doing whatever you want, a new passion has taken on. And this passion is for God's will, for doing what pleases him, for doing what he wants, for what makes him happy. When you intend to, to suffer, to take up a cross and follow Jesus, what you're saying is that something now matters more to you than what you wanted before. To those passions that were your guy, something matters more to you than sin. Let me give you one more example that may help to, to understand what he means here. Uh, we watched, or re- recently we noticed this Netflix documentary on this ultra marathoner who tackled the Appalachian Trail trying to break the record for the fastest time to finish it from top to bottom. Literally went from Maine to Georgia. Uh, this guy's name is Carl Meltzer. Uh, I, won't spoil, I won't spoil it. For, maybe I'll just go ahead and spoil it for you. He breaks the record. Uh, he breaks the record only to have it broken the next year by someone else. But, but the, the, the documentary is great. Unfortunately, it came out, you know, it was already produced and everything before that his record was broken, I think. So it, it lasted at least for a little while. Well, the interesting thing about this documentary is that what you see is just this unreal life this man lives. So this is a guy who, who ran the Appalachian Trail and all of its ups and downs at a pace of 47-ish miles per day for 45-plus days straight. 47 miles a day up and down these hills over these rocks crossing these rivers even and you see what kind of training he had to do it was a full-time job took a crazy amount of time all these weird times of day and night that he's up and running sleeping barely at all eating just whatever he can to fuel his run injuries really nasty looking injuries let's just say they usually involve feet and blisters and various and sundry other things that happen when you run on the Appalachian Trail for 47 miles in a day. And the, the, he's not surprised. The, the interesting thing about this documentary, and where I think it's relevant for what Peter means here, is that this guy, Carl, he's not surprised that he's getting injured. The blisters don't catch him off guard. Neither do the long days, the late nights, and the early mornings. He's not surprised by deprivation, by, by what for him is a kind of suffering. And the fact that he's willing to take that suffering on, knowing it's going to cost him this, shows that he's made a break with comfort. He's done with what I basically live for day in, day out, all day, every day. He's done with it. Comfort is over for him. Something else, I don't know what, something else is more important to him than comfort. And the suffering isn't, I don't think, what he likes about this lifestyle 
You know, it's not, he's not really into blisters, right? He's really into something else, though, that he values more than he valued comfort. And the suffering was part of the package deal because you don't get one without the other. Those who intend to suffer, Peter's saying, have ceased from sin. The way that Carl Meltzer has ceased from comfort. Something else is more important to them. They have a new desire, a new passion for God's will that's more satisfying to them than their old desires, whatever they may have been. Speaking of those old desires, the second thing we need to see about this text, the second thing that Peter's teaching us about suffering as a Christian, not just that it's intentional. In other words, you ought to plan for it. Christians aren't surprised by it. They go into it seeking it, not as an end in itself, but because it's part of the package deal of being with Jesus. The second thing you need to know is that not just is it intentional for Christians, but it's also inevitable. One reason you need to plan on it is that Peter's saying it's guaranteed. And this is built into what I've already said, so hopefully we'll make enough sense on its own. But this is where Peter goes next. Peter goes next into an, a two ways to live sort of scenario. It's really common in the New Testament to do this, where, where an author like Paul, Paul has a couple of lists like this, will say, here's what you were doing. You put that off. And here's what, here's what Christ has done in your life. You've put this on. There's two ways to live, one that used to be true of you and one that is true of you now. And Peter's about to give us one of these lists. He's saying, the time that has passed, the life you lived up to this point, well, that was enough already. Like, you've already been down that road doing the kind of things that other people want to do. He says Gentiles as a, a reference to people who don't believe in this God and this Savior. These ethnically would have been mostly Gentiles he's writing to, but he sees them as having moved into the people of God. So when he says Gentiles, it's just a reference to those who don't honor or believe in or worship this God. And what he says is, you've already gotten all you need out of that life that the Gentiles live, following what they naturally want. His list is extreme, but very common in that time as a, as a list that describes this way of life. Think of it as just completely unrestrained physical desires. Doing what they want to do, he says. Whatever they want, whatever their desire leads them. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The idolatry, I think, is thrown in there because a lot of times these types of activities were involved in their worship. Like the worship of idols was often focused on this life, these bodies, what we can get out of this life and getting the gods to be on our side so that we get it. And so a lot of times you would just participate in the kind of things you're hoping those gods would give you as part of your worship, uh, whether it be a fertility god or a harvest god or, or whatever. So he's saying you have lived that life, unrestrained physical desire, enough already. When you give up on that life that you once lived, what you're doing is choosing a suffering, a kind of suffering that will be inevitable. That's what he says next. And I want to I try to pull this out for you on two levels. I think there's two levels on which suffering for Christians will be inevitable. When what you want is God's will more than the things, the desires that come natural embedded in you. There's, we come hardwired with a set of desires, right? And without God, we're pursuing whatever we want, unrestrained. To become a Christian is to now want what God wants, to, to, to want to please him more than we want to please ourselves. So when you make that shift, two kinds of suffering are going to be inevitable for you. One is, I think, implied in what he says here. I want to start here. And that is the kind of suffering that comes just imposed from within, 
the kind of self-denial and self-discipline that comes with choosing God's will over what comes natural to us. And then the other kind of suffering is imposed from without, the kind of uh, external pressure that comes when you, di- when you divert from the path you were on that everyone else around you is on. So, so I think we, we don't want to overlook, first of all, a kind of suffering that a Christian is choosing for themselves simply by their decision not to do whatever they want. A suffering that's imposed from within. In verse 3, he's, he's defining their old way of life as a life of unrestrained desire. That's over now. You live now for the will of God. Now, that's always going to come with the kind of discipline that hurts sometimes. A denial of pleasure. A rejection of things you would normally want but now don't because God says they're not pleasing to him. And we could pull any of his examples out of here just to make sure this is clear. I'm going to pull sexuality because it seems to be top of mind for him and it's top of mind in our, in our culture as well. Just so you can see a little bit more about what I mean here. So, Christians believe, the Bible teaches, that sex is a wonderful, beautiful, incredible gift of God. Something designed by Him with purpose and love. But Christians also believe what the Bible says about sex. That it's not a small thing, but a big thing. It's not small. It's not casual. It's not cheap. It's not harmless. Someone has compared sex to, to fire. I don't know where I first heard this or who it would be original to, but that, that in a fireplace where it belongs, it's wonderful, warm, life-giving. Outside of a fireplace, fire is destructive. It, it, it tears things down. It leaves nothing standing in its wake. Sex is kind of like that. It has that kind of power. That's what the Bible teaches. And the Bible gives a context for sexual pleasure. The Bible teaches that that context is marriage between a man and a woman. Anywhere but this context and sex, which is a wonderful and powerful and pleasurable gift, is not good. It's beyond God's will. And some of you are not married. And others of you find yourselves only attracted sexually to persons of your own gender. And others of you may be holding on in a marriage where your sex life is not what you want it to be. Maybe off the table altogether. And, and you're human. Which means that all things being equal, you probably desire to have sex. And you know as a Christian that you don't have an avenue to sex that would please God. Not today and, and, and maybe not ever. And if you choose to embrace God's will, even if you don't understand his will, what you're choosing is to suffer. You're choosing something else that's more valuable to you, more rewarding, even than human passions that you're hardwired to want. What Peter is saying here, I think, is encouraging you not to be surprised that this choice is in front of you. And to remember that this choice, the choice to embrace God's will, is worth it. There is a kind of suffering that comes just as an inevitable part of choosing to love the will of God more than you love what you came wanting by nature. That's a, a suffering imposed from within. Peter then shifts his focus, though, to a kind of suffering that's imposed from without. When you choose, 
a disciplined life like this. A life that says no to some things that you otherwise would have said yes to because you're saying yes to the will of God. When you choose that, then all of a sudden you are, you are outside of a tidal wave of human passion and desire that you once were caught up in and that others around you will be caught up in. And that is not going to land well on them. Once you've chosen this kind of self-denial, suffering from within, if you will, you should expect to suffer from without too. Look what Peter says in verse four. With respect to this, the fact that you believe that the time that's passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, that you're over that now, you're living for a different passion now. With respect to that, they, your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues, whatever, are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. It will be surprising to people when physical desires are no longer your chief guide. And it won't be surprising in a good way. In, in some cases, it might seem like antisocial behavior. In some cases, it may seem like judgment, like you're taking on a posture that's holier than, than other people. In some cases, it may even be viewed as dangerous seems like in Peter's background, that's exactly how it was viewed. To have stepped out of this unrestrained desire that was involved in their worship, in their, in their, their public cults, in the, 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 the expectations for citizenship in that ancient world, to step out of that, you seem disloyal and dangerous. And in our own way, the same thing could be true today. You should expect to be maligned, Peter's saying. And we could, here, here again, we could use lots of different examples. Uh, I think how our, we use our words should surprise people. The fact that we think words matter, that the Bible teaches us they are, that the tongue it has a power to destroy as well as to, to heal and to build up. We have to bow out of gossipy conversations that maybe we otherwise would have fostered. There will be jokes that we can't laugh at that demean other people made in God's image that will raise eyebrows and maybe lead to some sort of detachment. But to keep pushing the example I used earlier, I think is top of mind for Peter and, and for us too. Think about just sexuality in general today. And the surprise that it is to many people that we live around that we would see sex as something designed by God with rules that govern it. read recently a, a part of a, a sociologist's work uh, came out a couple years ago studying sexual habits among uh, people in their 20s and 30s. The title of the book was Cheap Sex because he's an economist and his argument was that it, sex has maybe never been cheaper in terms of what it costs and all the different ways that cost gets measured to, to get it. And what that does to, the, to our mindset, our expectations, one effect of that is that it's, it's just mystifying to people if you're not enjoying it like they are on their terms. So friends, if you're a Christian and you're in a relationship with someone that you're not yet married to and you're deciding that you are not going to sleep together outside of marriage, your friends will, may not understand that. It'd just be unthinkable. Why wouldn't you? It's so, it's, it's so easy. And what's the harm? What's the cost? 
they'll be surprised and, and maybe not in a good way. Or if you're in conversations with, with, with friends and colleagues about homosexual marriage. It's been such a prominent national conversation in the last few years. There may be no level of empathy and love, genuine concern and humility on your part that you can display that will prevent you from being viewed as bigoted and backward and hateful. It will be surprising that you see something as inappropriate that seems so natural and so good to them. Friends, we live in a, in a culture where at, at le- for decades even, good sex has been defined by any sex I want that someone else wants to give me as long as there's consent in play. And Christians believe that, that God speaks into this area of our lives. I think that many of us, many of us shy away from a style of Christianity that invites conflict, that just goes for it, maybe even lives for it. I, I, I want to affirm that desire, that we want to be salt and light. We want to make the, the world around us taste better. And we want people to see how good Christianity can taste, to leave a good taste in their mouth when we talk to them. We want to be gentle and respectful as Peter himself tells us to do in chapter three. We want to look for what we can affirm, not what we deny. And to a point, that is good. I think that's a Christ-like posture. But there should always be some things in the areas I've mentioned or in a host of other areas I haven't. There should always be some things that, that alienate people from us. That at one and the same time, Christians should be attractive and also alienating. There will be things we can't join in, even if we're not picketing, even if we're not hurling rhetoric, and that'll be confrontational. Just by the fact that we can't join in on what everyone else is saying or celebrating or wanting or doing. Because implicit in us not joining in is gonna be a confrontation that will feel judgmental. So we gotta work as hard as we possibly can to make sure that, that we aren't just being jerks. But the word that governs our thinking and our living, no matter how we adorn it with grace and patience and gentleness and humility, will be alienating no matter what. And if we're always fitting in, if we're always able to say yes to whatever's going on around us, that isn't a good sign for our alien living that Peter takes for granted in this letter. So I wanna ask you a question I think would be helpful to think about with your friends, maybe in your small groups this week. Where are you experiencing an inevitable distance between your choices, your lifestyle, and those around you who aren't Christians? Where does that show up for you? Now, the two points we've covered so far, the fact that Peter assumes we should go into our Christian commitment expecting to suffer because our Christian commitment will inevitably lead to suffering raises a crucial question that I want to tackle in the few minutes we've got left. It's a question that Peter answers. It's been built in. It's kind of behind the scenes of what he said so far. He answers it in the last couple of verses. If we should plan to suffer as a package deal with commitment to Jesus, because suffering is going to be inevitable for, for, for aliens living in one kingdom in the midst, living for one kingdom rather, in the midst of another kingdom, 
then why should we want God's will to begin with? What, what rationale makes, it, makes this kind of intentional suffering plausible, desirable even? Why would we want what Peter is telling us to expect? And the answer to that question, friends, depends on hope. Suffering is, is a major theme through this whole letter. I mentioned that already. But right there along with it, in lockstep, is the theme of hope. That Christ has done something for us as Christians that changes how we interact with our world now. That he's put in front of us an expectation based on his work foreshadowed in his own resurrection that changes our value system and how we evaluate what a good life is now. What Peter does to remind them why they should choose suffering willingly and and even though it's not an if but a when, what he does is take them to what happens after death. He's reminding them that death is not the end. Look at verse five. Yeah, he said, they will malign you when you choose a different path than they have. But they will give an account, he says, to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's a judgment coming for all people. And then he tells them why the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. For, he says in verse 6, this, the fact of this coming judgment, is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Here's what I think he's saying. I think what he's saying here, the the dead that he's referring to are people who heard the gospel when they were alive and then died. They were judged according to the flesh. Death is a kind of judgment for sin that, that the Bible tells us all of us experience. Genesis 3 explains where it came from as a kind of judgment. So these people who heard the gospel and believed in it when they were alive, they still died. They met the same fate as everybody else, even those who didn't believe. And presumably, the reason Peter goes here is that these Christians were being shamed for that fact. That those Christians who were still alive were having to listen to people who weren't Christians say, hey, you know, your friend there had the same, same hope that you do, and he's dead. So, so why would you hold yourself back from all these pleasures that make life worth living only to end up dead in the end anyway. You're fools. I think that's the background here. This list from from verse three, all all these things that, that the Gentiles were living for, it's echoed in other lists. It's echoed in the book of Ecclesiastes and the, the writer's perspective that because death is coming, we may as well make the most of life now in the meantime. Or, or it's echoed in Paul who quotes this kind of catchphrase for, for uh, one of the major Greek philosophies. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now that's an assumption that's based, or, or the, the assumption at the heart of that perspective is that death is the end, right? That, that, that everything stops when your heart does. So we may as well try to get as much as we can. In the meantime, we need to make this life count. So that's what they're thinking, these Gentiles that he's talking about who are doing what they want to do. They're trying to maximize their options, maximize the pleasures that are available to them before it's all gone. The good life for them was defined by what they got to enjoy before they died. And and honestly, if death is the end, if that is everything, then I think that philosophy makes pretty good sense. 
If death is the end, then self-deprivation does look like foolishness. Paul pretty much says that. He accepts these terms. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if, if Christ is not raised, then we're of all people most to be pitied. We, we are fools if death is the end. And for now, it looks like it is. But Peter is reminding his friends why they intend to suffer, why they cease from sin to begin with, why they accept shame from those they can no longer follow down this tidal wave of human passion. He's reminding them that what seems true now isn't true, that there is a day of judgment that comes for all people living and dead when the truth will be revealed. He's reminding them that you, friends, in Christ, you prefer shame now from your peers and honor from God on that day. God's opinion matters to you most. And that day of judgment where his opinion is given, that day after death is everything to the question of what a good life actually is. I wonder how you would answer that question. What is a good life? How would you answer that? Friends, I think whether you realize it or not, your answer to that question, what is a good life? Your answer to that question depends a lot on what you think will happen after you die. So I wonder, is the assumption behind the way you're approaching your life now that there's nothing coming after you die? If that's the assumption that's driving how you pursue what you pursue, what you want in this life, if, if that's the assumption behind it, that the material world is everything and that when your heart beats, stops beating, your life is over. If, if that's your assumption, why are you so sure about that? I wonder what evidence has convinced you that this material world is all there is. Are you so sure? Maybe there's something in you that hints that there is more. Isn't there something in you that hints that there's more? Maybe something you feel in a beautiful piece of music. Something that gets stirred up in you when you're looking out from an overlook in the Smoky Mountains. Or when you see the brilliant colors that you couldn't imagine if you weren't seeing them in front of you on a sunset. Isn't there something in you that speaks to you that there's more than what you see and live for now? Do you see, friend, that, that choosing to live as if death is it is a huge gamble? That you're betting that no one is watching when you can't be sure that they aren't. Friends, the, the Bible says, all I can do is say to you what the Bible says. All of us will wait to learn if it's true for sure. But here's what the Bible says. God is watching. He does take an interest in everything we do. We're important to him. We matter. Our choices have consequences. There's a warning in this, friends. Don't bet against him. But there's also an invitation built into what Peter says here about this day of judgment 
and the gospel preached to those who are dead that they might live in the spirit the way God does. There's an invitation here too. It's an invitation to a life that can't be erased by death. It's an invitation to a new desire, a new passion to please him no matter the effect it has on your reputation in the eyes of others. And in that invitation is not just an opportunity, not just a maybe, not just a what if. Let me try to please him and hope for the best. If you zoom out a little bit more and take in more in the, in the, the, the portrait or the, or the offer, the promise that Peter's been, been describing for us throughout his whole letter, you know that what it takes to please God ultimately at the most fundamental level, what it takes to please God is the righteousness Jesus has already promised to give you. Peter has already said in one of the most beautiful gospel summaries I know of that Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. The offer to you this morning, the the warning is don't bet against him watching you. Don't bet without evidence that your death will be the end of you. The offer to you, the promise to you is that if you want to please God, you can. And that's a promise to you no matter what you've already done, no matter what you can't undo. You can please God because Jesus pleases him perfectly. And Jesus died a death he didn't deserve so that you wouldn't have to get what you deserve. So that the the righteousness of Christ could become yours. So that he could bring you to God in peace and happiness, not in fear. Trust Christ this morning, friend, and you'll get everything he deserves. That's the gospel that was preached to those who have now died, and they died in faith so that they might live with God. We can too. And in the meantime, we live in hope. We live by a different compass. One that's, that, that's assured the good life is a life that pleases him. One that's, that's, that's built around God's friendship, God's presence, God's judgment as the most important thing in our lives. Builds around the confidence that what we experience now, friends, in this life of ups and downs is only a faint taste of what's been promised to us. I love this quote from a book, uh, a book about Ecclesiastes by a pastor from Scotland named David Gibson. He's talking about a lot of the themes that we've been talking about that are, are here in Peter's text, but also in Ecclesiastes. Gibson writes, Those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks as if that's all there is to do before we die. Right? That sounds like Peter's, Peter's audience, who he has in mind. But, Gibson writes, Those who love Christ cherish eating and drinking because it looks a little like what we'll do after we die. This choice is not one between fun and misery. Between saying yes to the good gifts of this life and no to them. It's a choice to embrace now the goodness God has provided and defined on his own as a foretaste of the goodness he has offered to us for all eternity. Father, I pray that you would help us to see this choice and make it well. 
that your spirit would give our hearts new desires, new passions for your will to replace the ones that we had before. We ask you for this because we know that willpower has never been enough for us. That hearts of stone don't just become hearts of flesh because they woke up in the morning and decided to do it. We need your power at work in us so that we live in light of what you've promised us. I pray that you would do that work in in every person that's here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.